We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor. And he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. Good morning, Tampa Bay. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'm coming at you on WGUL 860 AM. This is interactive and talk radio. Now, if you're joining the show for the first time, I'll let you know that I stick to one topic, and it's well-prepared. And I do the questions, and you give me the answers. So I'll ask a couple of questions as we go through the show, and I'll give away two $25 gift certificates to the restaurant of my wife's choice. And by the way, I know that there's one household that you guys are calling a lot. Um, I appreciate that you're all listening there, but I'm going to have to get a head count one of these days, or I'm going to have to make you wait a little bit longer because you're hogging up all the gift certificates, guys. People are crying. Oh, my. Well, listen, here's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to start off talking about the labor movement in the United States. And then I will go to talking about the industrialists in the United States. Why am I doing this? Well, because labor has gotten a lot of play over the past 100 years, 150 years, with the labor movement. And Labor Day was actually started in the 1880s by... President Grover Cleveland, and this was by pushes from some of the labor unions in the Central Labor Labor Union and the Knights of Labor, who organized the first parade in New York City for uh, Labor Day, and this was apparently a big success. Now, after one of the riots that was fomented by labor unrest and what was perceived as unfair working conditions and too long of working hours and low pay. There were some riots and some massacres that occurred. One was at the Haymarket Massacre in Chicago on May 4th, 1886. Now, a lot of people wanted to commemorate Labor Day on May 1st, which is the traditional day for socialists around the world. And Grover Cleveland feared that if we commemorated Labor Day on May 1st, it would become an opportunity to foment more unrest among laborers. So in 1887, he established it on the first Monday in September. And this is a good thing. We like to say thank you to all of our workers. It's important that we have uh, people that are willing to work and work hard. And we say grateful things to you on this day and throughout the year by buying the products and the services and the goods that everybody produces. And it is a group effort. But we also have to remember the industrialists who took their knowledge, their skills, their willingness to organize, their brain power, their willingness to 
put their own money and the money of other people at risk to build the empires that they built. And although they became very wealthy, the quote, quote, robber barons, they also did a lot of good. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. And we have to look at both sides of the coin and realize that it is a group effort. And there's always going to be a tug of war between the worker and the management. <clears throat> That's just an inevitability. So the public sector now, you say, well, what percentage of the United States workers actually belongs to unions? What percentage is unionized? It's about 13%, and it's uh, split up maybe 11%, I think is more like it. And men are 11.9%, women 10.5% unionized. And the majority of unionized workers are in the public sector jobs and the government jobs, 35%. Not unexpected compared to the private sector, which is 6.7%. So the unions do not have the hold that we think they do in the private sector. Certainly in the public sector, they have a, a, a grip, but uh, it's tough to hang on to the workers unless the unions are actually doing something of value, giving them something for their, their dues. And I saw this at St. Pete Hospital when they unionized that a lot of the nurses joined the union and they ended up giving another 1% or 2% of their income away. And I said, why are you guys doing that? And they said, well, we're going to get all these benefits and we're protected and da-da-da-da. Prior to that time, there was a policy and procedure manual that the hospital had for its employees. And there was wiggle room for employees who were late or who had had problems and were uh, being reprimanded. But with the labor union now, there was a solid contract. And the hospital has to do certain things if employees are late more than, say, three times or whatever a specific rule is, they have to let them go according to the contract that they have with the union. And so a lot of the benefits that people thought they were going to get really turned out to be uh, detriments to their situation at the hospital and not much return on the money. So at any rate, they unionized. Not everybody joined the union, but uh, they did it, and they thought that it would bring them something that they didn't have. Now, I think that labor unions over the decades have done some good things, but I think also it's become another big business institutionalized, and the people at the top in some of these big labor union organizations are making huge money, big money, and it's really kind of ridiculous. However, there's still a percentage of the people that believe in it. And, of course, New York State remains the biggest unionized state with almost 25% of its workers unionized. And I've said this before uh, many times that New York has waged and priced and taxed itself out of the world market because the labor unions demand more money, and they get it, and other workers ride in on that train. And the taxation rate's been high in New York relative to the rest of the states on businesses. Although I see over the past year or two, they've been running ads on TV saying, come back to New York, we'll give you 10 years tax-free uh, for new businesses starting up and various incentives. And so they realize that they've made a mistake. Can they rectify that? Well, we'll have to see. Now, North Carolina has the lowest percentage of unionized workers, 
So the Haymarket Massacre occurred in 1886, and it involved strikers who wanted uh, better wages and better protection because of the fluctuation of markets, the law of supply and demand. And these became big problems for the people who organized and ran the businesses, is how to even out supply and demand so that there were not the up and downs and the, uh, the recessions and the Great Depressions that have plagued the country off and on since the inception of the Union. And they introduced a whole new way of doing business so that the mantra for how to, surf, how to survive and how to prosper as a business changed between uh, 1800 and 1860 and 1860 and 1890. Now, the Civil War made a lot of people wealthy, and it produced a lot of mass industry uh, in the North because people had to mass produce. The government wanted guns mass produced. People had to produce this so that there were weaponry, uh, munitions, canned food came in at that time. A number of in innovations started with the Civil War. And after the Civil War, uh, people like Cornelius Vanderbilt who had started off in the shipping industry but morphed over into the train industry, started building trains. And as you all know, by the uh, 1860s, 1870s, there was a transcontinental railroad. Uh, remember, we all see it in history, Promontory Point, where they drove in the spike, the golden spike, whatever it was. And this, of course, opened up even larger markets for big business as well as small business people like me. And these guys took a risk. They sacrificed and put their money on the line and had investors back them and projected that we'll need more steel. So Carnegie got into the steel business. <clears throat> now, how did this happen? Andrew Carnegie was a Scotsman who came over here when he was a kid with his parents. His father died early. And in his early teens, he was already working. And he had the work ethic that he had inherited from hardworking Scotsmen. And he also had a good brain, and he knew how to organize. And so he eventually got into the steel business. He started off as a clerk, and then he worked his way up, saved his money. He bought, he consolidated. Carnegie Steel eventually morphed into U.S. Steel. And what people don't know, because they think these guys were robber barons, they don't know what they did to help the price of goods. Andrew Carnegie, because of his techniques and his ability to organize and mass produce, brought the price of steel down from a dollar a pound to a nickel a pound from 1860 to 1900. Well, how did he do this? Well, he was an astute young guy. And he had looked at the Bessemer process. The Bessemer process was developed by an Englishman, industrialist, and it was a way of purifying steel to drive all of the carbon out of the steel, out of the pig iron, and to drive out all the impurities. He ran oxygen, pure oxygen, through the smelting pots. And so Carnegie took this, and he developed a way of doing it on a massive scale. And so he could purify the, the iron and make it into steel. And as you and I all know, there's different kinds of steel. There's stainless steel, 
and then there's utility steel, there's sheet metal steel, there's steel that uh, will rust and steel that won't. And so the whole science and industry of metallurgy took a giant step forward because people started playing with this and they started putting different elements, different metals in with the steel. And if you put a little bit of carbon in, you get a stronger steel. If you want a stainless steel, you got to put nickel and chromium in it. If you want to have another type of steel that's more malleable and you can work with, you'd put a, a metal in it a little bit that's a little softer, and so it would work easier. And this opened up a tremendous amount of ability as well as opportunity, and it also brought the prices of everything down. And we're living in the world we live in because of these guys. And if you look around you, almost everything you see and touch in your house, in your car, in your office, the roads we ride on, they all have some aspect of steel, sheet metal involved in either the manufacturer or the components or the <clears throat> paving of the streets and without the efforts made by Carnegie, we wouldn't have this. So he brought an industry from inception to a worldwide leader. And yes, there were workers involved. <clears throat> and at the time, he probably had the most desirable jobs for immigrants who were coming into the United States. They were in foundries. It was smelting. It was hot. It was brutal work. And just as Americans today don't want to mow their own lawns and do the roofing work because it's too hot, immigrants came in and took the jobs, just like the Mexicans are coming in now. Because they want to make money, there's money to be made. These guys, these immigrants who came in, they made good money. And a whole industry developed around this for people coming from Europe and Asia to find jobs in the mills in Pittsburgh and in Alabama, <clears throat> a few other places around the country. But not only did Andrew Carnegie bring us a new process for making steel and a way to bring down the price and make a greater quantity, he also was able to organize all the other little steel mills, and he would buy them out. He would often incorporate their management into his. Of course, there was some pairing back, and he could play tough as in any business. You know, if he saw somebody who was trying to undercut his price, he'd go lower. He'd cut his profit margin because he saw a market that he could go after. A lot of Americans felt sorry for the little guy, and they felt sorry for the workers. And there was even a large uh, strike at the steel mill, one of Carnegie's steel mills, and his partner, Fick, was in charge because Andrew was away on vacation. And Fick was very anti-union, and he would had no respect for those people who were in the, in the mine, so to speak, doing the hard work. And he refused to allow them to occupy the, the premises to stop the foundry from working. He wanted scabs to come in. Scabs are those people who are non-union or not presently employed who want to break through the picket lines and come in and take the jobs because they were good jobs. They were paying good money. 
<clears throat> well, the government wouldn't help him, so he hired the Pinkerton police, which are private police. And by the way, the Pinkertons uh, were the bodyguards for Lincoln, and from the offshoot of that developed the Secret Service to protect the president. But the Pinkertons were brought in, and they fired on the workers when they wouldn't disperse, and the workers fired back and threw things, and several people were killed, and the country was outraged, and everybody said it's Carnegie's fault. And then as they looked deeper into it, they saw that there were other factors involved, and so the sentiment switched back the other way. Nevertheless, the unions were able to gain a foothold in part from these riots that occurred in the era between 1860 and 1900. And there were also trusts that were formed by these big guys like Andrew Carnegie. And the trust would hold together a large number of businesses under one heading. And a lot of people thought that was unfair, so then the government passed antitrust laws. Now, they have been variably enforced, and, of course, some people like to enforce them more than others. The Clintons went after Microsoft. I don't think they got anywhere, but they did. It's a lot of time and money spent trying to bust up uh, an industry like Microsoft. And, by the way, think about Bill Gates. Think about Stephen Jobs. These two guys, who are 20th century industrialists, have changed the way that we live. They have absolutely forever altered the way that you and I conduct our affairs, communicate with one another, store knowledge, retrieve knowledge, make airline ticket reservations, find out what the weather is going to be. And it's all because these two guys figured out ways to make the manufacture and distribution and improvement of the microprocessor of computers and computer chips and motherboards better, more readily available. Think about it. I bought a TRS computer. I guess a lot of you guys don't even know what that was. It was the computer that Tandy was pushing in the early days, uh, 1982-81-80, somewhere in there. It was about $1,200 for that thing. It was basically just a fancy typewriter, and it could do some calculations. We had a spreadsheet on it, and you could do some, some tax work on there, but there weren't a lot of programs out yet, a lot of software for that. But now for $1,200, I can get a computer that'll make breakfast if I wanted to. I mean, it's unbelievable. There's more memory in a wristwatch now than there was in the initial computers that came out, and... Uh, Stephen Jobs and Apple formed that, and uh, Bill Gates split away from those guys and started Microsoft. And we can't forget the two guys that were their partners as well, Paul Allen at Microsoft, and this guy was the brains behind the electronics of this, and Wozniak was the brains behind the Apple. And these four people together have changed the, the face of the earth forever. Are they robber barons? I don't think so. I, you know, I think that we still should have and will have, no matter what kind of system we live under, those people who are going to excel and supersede and do something in part out of love, in part out of drive, in part out of desire for more money, in part out of seeing where it's going to go, 
we don't take risk, we don't get anywhere. It's the same way with the workers in the 19th century. My grandfather, my mother's father, he was Polish, and he came to the United States, and he was going to work in either the steel mills or in the coal mines. At that time, in the turn of the century, the steel mills were uh, slowing down a bit, but the coal mines were still cranking away. So he ended up in southeast Ohio, and he was a coal miner all of his life. And this is where he raised his family. This is where my mother grew up, and they were basically subsistence living. He got a wage. He had a truck farm. He had enough money to buy food and clothing for the family, had his vegetables in the back, and uh, he made it. My mother ended up becoming a doctor, bright girl, studied hard. She went to high school, was a valedictorian. Then she went to college for two years at Kent State and got an associate's degree, came back, taught English and saved her money. When she had enough money for college to finish up in medical school, she did it. And she became a doctor. So here's another person that's on, quote, quote, the management side, a doctor, and she came out of very humble roots, and she worked her way up. So we have to look at all of the factors that go into making what we call the American industrial revolution, the workforce, and we have to think about a lot of people, not only those who are the workers, but also those who were the organizers and the inventors, the industrialists. You think of Thomas Edison and the electric light bulb. We still have a company, or at least last I checked, up northeast, Edison Electric. And Edison was the first person to come up with a workable light bulb, and that was a tremendous invention. And it made our lives completely different. Prior to that, people had coal oil lamps. By the way, my mother had coal oil lamps even when she was a girl because electricity had not reached a lot of the rural areas and the uh, coal mining districts. But coal oil lamps were what you used at night or the fire or a candle to see. And most people, their day revolved around sunrise and sunset. After the invention of the electric light bulb, we went from running factories 8 to 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, to 24 hours a day. We were able to study in the evening. We had more recreational time. We could plan our day better. That's one guy, Thomas Edison. He was an inventor and an industrialist. And then Alexander Graham Bell... He was another Scotsman who came to the United States, emigrated here. And we all know what he developed, the telephone. And the telephone, as we all know, was actually co-invented by Alexander Graham Bell and women, because this is how women stay in touch. And that's a great thing. Women are happier when they're in touch with each other. They they feel the need. You know, guys are more likely to, to do their work, come home, and... <clears throat> be a grumpy old bear and stay in their man cave. But the women need that. So ladies, take your hats off if you got one on. To Alexander Graham Bell, the man who brought you the telephone. And uh, they're great people from that century. Vanderbilt. Everybody's been to the Vanderbilt estate is, or has heard about it. That's in Asheville, North Carolina, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, in Asheville. 
Isn't that where it is, Jose, in Asheville? I think so. We'll find out, and if I'm wrong, we'll let you know. So tremendous uh, estate, the Biltmore. The Biltmore, yeah, that's that's one of the Carnegie. I mean, that's one of the Vanderbilts. And uh, Andrew Carnegie, you think he was a rich guy who hoarded all of his money? Absolutely not. His philosophy was that you make what you make, and when you've gotten to where you want to go, you start giving it away. But not to individuals. You give it to organized situations. So there's Carnegie Mellon University that Andrew Carnegie started. There's Carnegie Hall in, in New York City, which is a concert hall, and he donated for that. A lot of libraries and a lot of townships and jurisdictions in the United States receive money from him for their libraries. The great expansion of knowledge, in part because of Andrew Carnegie. He said he wasn't going to leave anything to his heirs because he thought they should have to work and earn what they get. They'll be more appreciative. And he himself was not anti-union, but the company stayed uh, non-union until the early 1900s when it was uh, bought out and morphed into U.S. Steel. And that company was providing a lot of the steel for the world. The, the steel industry has gone down because we're using more plastics, we're recycling, and we're finding different ways to make products that are strong and safe without using metal, like uh, the carbon fiber. Everybody's heard about that. And even the flak jackets, in the old days, if you wanted some protection, you strapped on a piece of steel or you went to your local uh, metal armor suit guy and he made, uh, if you were Sir Billy the Knight, you'd get your outfit made and it was basically a type of steel that had been pr produced by, that, by the Middle Ages and the Renaissance folks. And so this was the, the protection, the armor for people who went into battle. Well, now you can get a flak jacket, and it doesn't have any metal in it at all, and it weighs a quarter of what the metal or a, or a fifth of what the metal uh, flak jacket weighed, and the soldiers can put these on, and the police, and they can be protected to a certain degree. So the whole thing's morphing now. And these are cycles that always come and go in the human scheme of things. And if you think about Vanderbilt, whose railroads reached most of the eastern United States, and think about the great things that he did, we have Vanderbilt University. We have the estate that his grandson built that is really, I think it's a public uh, uh, property now. Anybody can go in and see it. You pay a little fee to maintain it. And uh, it's a tremendous thing. And the same thing with uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, he has a place out in California. What's the name of it? Hearst Castle. Hearst Castle. I think there's another name for it. But uh, his father received a lot of land when California became a state. Uh, the government said, if you go out there and settle, we'll sell you land for a buck an acre. So he bought thousands of acres. He had been out there for a while. <clears throat> and his son inherited this. His dad started a newspaper in San Francisco. 
I think it's the San Francisco Chronicle. And William took it from there, and he ended up owning a lot of the major newspapers in the United States. He was in a number of businesses and industries. He was involved in the movie industry. And by the way, he was pro-union. And he built a beautiful estate. It's about halfway between L.A. and San Francisco, right on the water. The property's on the water. The home is up on the hill. Beautiful setting. We went there. Something to see. So these guys have all contributed back, in my feeling, my estimation, more than they put out. I mean, more than they took in. I think that the greater good was done by having these people that we call robber barons or industrialists. Well, this is Dr. Bill, and I'm going to grab me a cup of joe. You go change your depends. I'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. One day after planes dropped humanitarian aid on a besieged Iraqi town and U.S. aircraft conducted airstrikes, the Iraqi military says the six-week siege by Islamic State militants is over in Amerly. Australia's Prime Minister says the country will help arm Kurds as they fight the terrorists of the Islamic State group in northern Iraq, particularly around the city of Erbil. Russian President Vladimir Putin calling on Ukraine to immediately start talks on a political solution to the crisis in the country's east. He says Ukraine should, quote, hold substantive, meaningful talks on matters, including the statehood in southeast Ukraine. Right now, the Russians have essentially invaded that part of the country. And the World Health Organization says it's treating Senegal's first confirmed Ebola case as, quote, a top priority emergency. This is SRN News. Hugh Hewitt says, don't point the finger at Israel for tensions in the Middle East. I do not believe for a moment that any sane person believes that Israel is responsible for this. They're not going to pretend anymore that there is any way to achieve peace. The media in the world is beginning to line up and condemn Israel and to do moral equivalents, and that's simply not true. It has never been true, and it will never be true. The Hugh Hewitt Show, weeknights at 6, right before the Black Spear at 9, on Talk Radio 860, WGUL. Genuine and original, two words that describe the overhead door company of Tampa Bay, Tampa's oldest garage door company. This is Paul Porter. Don't be fooled by all those commercials you may see on TV or find on Google offering great big discounts. It's often for a much less than desirable product or service. You should trust a company I've known and have been doing business with for over 20 years. You'll find their work from beautiful Bayshore Boulevard to Raymond James Stadium. Look for the red ribbon for the original overhead door company of Tampa Bay. Call 813-885-3667 or visit overheadtampa.com. Every three minutes, another person falls further into credit card debt. Many credit card companies have nearly doubled their minimum monthly payment. People can barely afford to keep up. Here's the great news. With our powerful program, anyone with $2,000 or more in credit card debt can cut their credit card payments up to half and reduce or eliminate interest charges altogether. We are a nationwide nonprofit and have helped over 600,000 people with their credit cards. Get free of credit card debt today. Call 800-495-1307. That's 800-495-1307. Will Hillary Clinton's legacy catch up to her? Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. She may be the Democrats' next choice for the White House, but the latest issue of Town Hall magazine tells why her candidacy will be a challenge. 
There's also an eye-opening look at how liberals twist the language now education and service come together in our military academies. Get fresh, provocative reporting every month, plus a very special offer when you log on to subscribe at townhallmagazine.com. Do it today, townhallmagazine.com. Warm and humid day today with a mix of sun and some clouds. Uh, thunderstorm will be in the area later this afternoon with a high 94. Then a thunderstorm in a few spots early in the evening. Otherwise, patchy clouds through the night with a low 76. Labor Day tomorrow, widely separated afternoon thunderstorms. Otherwise, humid with clouds and sun, high 93. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Baxter for Talk Radio 860 WGUL. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and that's Lee Dorsey from the 1960s, working in the coal mine, going down, down, down. Tomorrow is Labor Day, and so I'm talking about labor. By the way, I have a question. What percentage of American workers are unionized? First person to give me a call at 813-289-1860. That's 813-289-1860. And if you're outside of the Tampa Bay area, give me a shout at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. That's the first question is what percentage of American workers are unionized? And the second one is who is Samuel Gompers? G-O-M-P-E-R-S. Who is Samuel Gompers? Again, 813-289-1860. That's 813 813- Two eight nine eighteen sixty and eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred. So we're talking a little bit about Labor Day and a lot about the industrialists, the quote quote robber barons who actually helped bring this about. The industrial revolution in the United States and our rise to world power. Men like. Vanderbilt, <clears throat> Carnegie, Alexander Graham Bell, Edison, Westinghouse, just a whole number of, of big names that were involved in making the world that we live in and changing it in ways that were unimaginable before the Civil War. So we need to be grateful not only to the workers, but we need to look at these guys in a more even and realistic light and not think of them as taking advantage of people or being uh, big meanies that took businesses away from other people by undercutting their their prices. You know, look at Walmart, guys. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of criticism of Walmart, but guess what? Blue jeans cost about the same now as they did in 1975 and 80. I can go out there and get a pair of blue jeans for 20 bucks. That's about what I paid for them way back when. And when I was a kid, they were cheaper, maybe five, ten bucks. But still, the price of a lot of goods has been held down because of the ingenuity and industry of Sam Walton. We've got a caller on the line. We got Debbie from Tampa. Debbie, what do you got for me, girlfriend? 
I think it's about 9%. It used to be about 12, 13, but it's gone down. Yeah, the last I saw a year or two ago was 11, so it's probably coming down. And I think that reflects the uh, changing times and the shift from heavy industry to more uh, light industry and paper-based industry, computer-based industry. What kind of job do you do, Deb? I'm post office, and we used to be probably 88 90% unionized, and now we're way down from that. We're maybe 60-some. Yeah, and I think that reflects a number of trends. Uh, now, do you think that you are uh, better off or safer uh, without the unions or with the unions? Well, it used to be that the unions were needed. Um, and, and maybe with the post office, it's not a fair example, because I think with the post office, we tend to need them more than not. But personally, I don't think I need the union. And if I were running a business, I would not need to unionize because I would be fair. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, too, the, the shift of, uh, of health care and the distribution of welfare and uh, the, uh, whether you believe it or not, there's certainly a redistribution of wealth. I mean, that's, that's what we do when we help out those who are less fortunate than us. I think that I, that has all changed. And, you know, now health care is being more and more uh, co-opted by the government and by big businesses that are working as subcontractors. So, that's one area in which things are changing, and, and of course, we have the government, uh, we have OSHA, and they look at the workplace and s- decide whether it's safe or not. Congress is involved in making law regarding this. There's a number of areas that have drastically changed the workplace and have also taken a lot of the need for unions away because the government's doing it. And, uh, you know, that that's a good or bad thing, depending on which side of the uh, federalist or anti-federalist equation you're on, but... Uh, I, I think I tend to agree with you that I don't think that a lot of industries need the unions like they did a hundred years ago. Hundred years ago, uh, the technology was shifting, and certainly the the way that people worked and the industries they worked in needed that shift in technology. And somebody needed to come in and say, "You got to use this technology to make it safer." And you may guys, you guys may not know this, but one of the most dangerous and high-paying jobs at the turn of the last century through 1910, 1915, were the guys that went up and pulled the wire for electricity. And they had a high death rate because they got shocked. Uh, they didn't have the proper insulation. Uh, they didn't have the right training. Uh, but they were paid a lot of money to string electrical wires. And... Uh, you know, there was a risk-benefit ratio there, just like there is in starting the business and starting Westinghouse. You don't know if you're going to make it or not. And indeed, Thomas Edison, his company, believed in D.C. electricity, and Westinghouse teamed up with Tesla, who was the Russian immigrant, who was the genius behind a lot of the electricity and electrical functions that we know today, and they produced the alternating current, which is what we have now. The direct current was too hard to push over great distances, there was too much line drop, too much loss of the electricity. So now we use alternating current, which is more dangerous, but we've also developed industries to be more protective, including uh, cords that are coated with material to keep us from shocking ourselves and breaker box and ground fault trip interrupters and different things. So it, it's a it's a trade back and forth, but again, I'll go back and say I agree. I don't think the unions are as important uh, because the 
responsibilities and the technology has shifted. Okay. Okay, my dear, I thank you for calling. Listen, stay on the line and, and give your address and name to, to my man, Jose, and he will give that to my wife and she'll send you out a gift certificate for $25. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. You know, it was interesting to me is that uh, Andrew Carnegie even wrote a book called The Gospel of Wealth, and his message was simple. People should be as free to make as much money as they can. So if you're a guy that's willing to take the risk and go up the, the electrical poles and string wire in 1905, and you're getting paid three times what the average wage earner is making, and you know the risk, hey, go at it, have at it. However, Andrew said, Andrew Carnegie said, you should give it away. The man who dies rich dies in disgrace. And this has been one of the big pushes of the Democrats to say, well, if they don't give it away, then the government should be able to tax part of that and redistribute that wealth. And you may agree or disagree, but this is one of the reasons that the government has grabbed onto that over the past 100, 150 years. And he said, never leave wealth to your heirs, to your children or grandchildren. He warned because... They won't learn how to survive on their own. They'll become dependent. Same way with welfare. If you have welfare indefinitely for people, human nature being what it is, a lot of people will opt to stay on welfare and never leave wealth to others to administer. Because once you're dead, they're not going to follow what you want them to do anyway, no matter how tightly you structure it. Give it away yourself, he said. Not as charity, but as philanthropy. Gifts to institutions or to the public or to help mankind. Sandy from St. Pete, come on, girl. You're on the line with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning. Good morning. I think I know the answer to Samuel Gompers. Yeah. He was the founder of the American Federation Labor Union. Yeah, the AFL. You're right. Yeah. He was a big guy. And yeah, he... I have to say I Googled it. I didn't know it like from my own knowledge. See, that shows you. Thank God to Bill Gates and uh, Stephen Jobs. I mean, you wouldn't be able to Google if it weren't for these guys. That's right. But I wanted to be honest because that's not something that, you know, I woke up and knew. That's but okay. I know my own name. Part of what I want people to do is, is being a member of my show is to learn how to use the tools at hand, whether they're computers or radios or whatever, and and join me in the show. And I, for me, it's a great thing when somebody says, well, I had to Google it. And I think, geez, that's great. You know what? More and more people are using the resources at hand. And that's the great part of being in the age that we're in. You know, there are not many ages in history that have been like ours. Maybe the Romans in the uh, first century B.C. and, and second, third century A.D. Uh, maybe the late uh, 19th century 18th century, I'm sorry, like the 1780s and 90s with Rose, with uh, Benjamin Franklin and understanding more about electricity and immunizations coming in for smallpox. But this is such a tremendous time in history. And we thank not only those who work day to day to make it so, but also those who are in management and who have put resources and money and time at risk, have given up other things in life to obtain what they have. Uh, because of some of the activities of these guys, though, like monopolies and big trust in the late 19th century and the idea of laissez-faire, uh, there was an outcry from the public and also from politicians 
who said, this isn't right. You shouldn't be able to take over a whole industry just because you're smarter than the next guy or you have a better product or you can undersell them. Well, you know, it, it's, it's always going to be a debate whether or not that really has done anything. In my opinion, the government often follows rather than leads. And in some areas, thank God they do that, like OSHA, for uh, the, the health of workers in the workplace. And most of it is good stuff. And also uh, for things like ensuring that old people have some insurance and have a little bit of a retirement plan. Granted, the, the social services, uh, the Social Security and Medicare were not meant to pay for everything, but uh, at least they're there and they help us somewhat. Let's hope that they don't go away. Well, my dear, thank you for calling, and make sure you give uh, your name and address to, to my man, Jose, and we'll get you out a gift certificate. Thank you for calling. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, so now we get into busting up all these monopolies, these cartels. You know, OPEC, everybody knows OPEC. That's a cartel. It's an association of business people, in, in the case of OPEC, of nations, to get together, and they set the price of oil. They do it for a number of reasons, including trying to ensure that there is distribution equitably, that the prices are not too high and not too low, that there aren't periods of, of glut and periods of, of dearth where there isn't oil available, and also to make money. You know, they're, they're in it to make money. You say, well, shouldn't the country, shouldn't the government take this over? You know, my, my example of that is Venezuela. They've taken over the oil industry, then they privatize it, then they take it over, then they privatize it. And you know what? They're still struggling. They still haven't figured it out. They vote in the military, then they vote in a socialist who turns out to be a dictator. So I think that we have to be very careful about what we do, what we say, how we handle the demands we make of our government in terms of, of, of structuring or reining in businesses. And even with all of the checks and balances that have been put into place over the past hundred years. We still had the big meltdown in 2006 and seven. And the Congress was directly responsible for it because the house, the Democrats in the house did not want to tighten up the restrictions and the qualifications on making loans. A lot of the home loans are backed by the government through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And, they were warned by then-Secretary of Snow, that was Bush's, I believe, second Secretary of the Treasury, who sent an eight-page letter to Congress in 2002 or three, and I read that. It's an eye-opener. He said, if you don't tighten up the uh, qualifications for these loans, if you don't have transparency within this system, if you don't rein in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac we're going to have a financial meltdown. And the Democrats said, we're not doing that. He resigned. He got out before the, the you-know-what hit the fan. So more power to him. I guess he was a little smarter than the rest of us. So the government can cause both good and ill. We all know that. And it's just a tough situation to know how much power to give them and also to convince the other side that 
it's too much power. If you give them that much power, it'll be to your detriment. And a lot of people just can't understand that. They can't see it. It doesn't make any sense to them. But that's the nature of the beast. And we also have to think about the, uh, what these guys did and the American workers in making an, an economy of scale. What do I mean by that? Well, we go up to Canada in the fall and we visit some of our friends and our, our travel insurers up there and keep relationships good and friendly. And we will go shopping invariably just to see what's in the Canadian stores and what it costs. Similar products, but the prices are 30 to 50% higher, sometimes 100% higher for common goods, clothing, shoes, food is higher. Why? Because they're a smaller country. They're one-tenth our size, and they don't have as much buying power as we do. So if they go into the market, say uh, uh, Billy Boyd Jeans up there goes into the market and wants to buy uh, a million pairs of blue jeans to distribute to the stores that, that Billy Boy has up in Canada, and he gets a Chinese company to manufacture and, and send these over, he's not going to get the same price as Walmart who goes out and says, we need 10 million pairs of blue jeans. Well, of course, the guy's going to say, and, and the gals in China, they're going to say, well, heck, make a nickel off of that instead of a 20 or 25 cents, and we're still going to come out ahead, and our manufacturing doesn't have to do much more than add a few more workers. That's a good thing. So we get it cheaper, so that's an economy of scale. And that's also what these robber barons or industrialists or whatever you want to call them realized and they said, you know what? We can bring products and services to people en masse, cheaper, quicker, more reliable by grabbing a hold of an industry, forcing that industry into some conformity and some standards. And so along with the industrialization and, that these guys implemented came standards not only of production but of distribution, of behavior in the workplace – of how management should should conduct itself, then there was subspecialties, so there was compartments and departments set up, there was departmentalization, and all this helped to make a more efficient and a more functional, smoother, faster industry, which brought a product or a service to us at a lot lower price and in a more timely fashion. The big problem, though, was overproduction and underconsumption. You get into the laws of supply and demand, and the government has tried to solve this, and the industrialists even addressed this, and I think that a lot has been done to make it so that the economies don't swing as much as they did, but there's never going to be a, a perfect solution. There, it's just not possible. There's always going to be that human factor, the element of people are tired of this product and want that product, so they stop buying it. Or the technology changes. And as it changes rapidly, we have to change. We have to change the way we think, the things we think we are capable of doing, the jobs that we do, and have to in some way find a new way for us to fit into the economy, make a living, thrive, survive, and be the healthy nation that we are and the individual that we are and the individualistic nation that we are. We don't want to destroy that. If we destroy that, then we're going to destroy one of the great assets, one of the great characteristics of our country, 
And you say, well, that didn't build the whole thing by itself. No, it took the work of a lot of people, also a lot of natural resources, a lot of natural resources. The Canadians have a lot of natural resources. Of course, getting to them is not as easy as it is down here, although they have a booming industry in oil. In farming, they have manufacturing, they have car plants, GMs up there. And so there's more to it than just you and me and uh, Andrew Carnegie. There's natural resources, the ability to get to them. Still, we take our half hats off to the leadership of Samuel Gompers, who in 1886 founded the AFL by uniting the Knights of Labor. And he did this by saying that, look, you can't have one union for all industries. Telephone workers should have a telephone union. It's a different market. It's a different product. It's a different set of problems. You're not in a foundry working where it's hot and you, you run the chance of becoming overwhelmed by the heat and dropping dead. So everybody has to have their own union, each industry. And that is one of the mainstays, not only of unions, but also of the capitalists and the industrialists. We're going to concentrate just on computers, and we're going to do the best job of anybody, and we're going to do it in such a large amount that everybody in the world can have a computer, and everybody does. Everybody has a computer. Well, not everybody, but most people do. Most, Even in China, even in poor countries like India, which are rapidly industrializing and becoming a first world nation. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing these guys did. And it's a good thing that the workers did. And I hope all of you all have a wonderful Labor Day. And remember to say thanks to each other for the work that we do. And, and let's not cast the industrialists as robber barons and, and pigs and meanies. Some were, most weren't. That's the way it goes just like in any other group of people. You got your good and you got your bad, and most fall somewhere in the middle. Well, getting near the end of the show. My man's yelling at me. I think we've got a couple minutes left. I want to put a plug in for West Coast Radiology. And, and also, uh, Jose, make sure that we're still running that West Coast Radiology ad. And uh, they're a good company. They do most of our work, and they have offices in Pinellas County and several points. Do they have one over in Tampa yet, honey? Yeah, wife says they've got an office in Tampa, too. They've got great self-pay rates, so give them a shout if you need something done or remind your doctor to use West Coast Radiology if you're allowed to go outside of your network. <clears throat> and also, I am at Bay Area Medical, home of CanCare. We're in St. Pete. And we do have uh, generic sildenafil, which is, uh, or Viagra, which is generic. The name is sildenafil. And if you're a part of the practice, you can get this at a discount. And you can always give us a shout at 727-384-6411. That's 727-384-6411. How much time we got, Jose? 60 seconds. Oh, my God. Let's play that music again going out. Can you key that up? Working in the coal mine. I don't know if you can get it up that quickly or not, but we'll see. And remember, if you have any questions or you want to join the show in the future, we're at WGUL 860-AM, and you can reach me worldwide on the web at 860-WGUL.com. 
Got some music coming in. Love you guys. See you next week. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Bay, a division of Salem Community.